The American Professional Football Association was officially declared in the auto showroom of Ralphie Hay Motor Company on September 17, 1920, by members of 11 teams. This was a decisive moment for what would become the National Football League. In this episode, I'm going to tell you the name of the father of professional football and what he did to keep the NFL from going extinct. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. So now we step off our time machine, and the date is October 23rd, 1879. We are in Columbus, Ohio, and this is the day that our hero was born. The hero of this story is going to be Joseph Francis Carr who later would become the president of the NFL for 19 seasons, from 1921 to 1939. And he has often been referred to as the father of professional football. Now, an article that I found from the Pro Football Researchers Association said that he only had five years of formal education, and they were at St. Dominique's Elementary School. And then at the age of 13, he went to work for a local machine shop to support his family. I'm just thinking... Maybe all those guys there see this 13-year-old kid and they're like, He took my job! He took my job! He took my job! I don't know. He would end up becoming a uh, machinist for the Panhandle Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad and also would be a sports writer for the Columbus newspaper. Through these two ventures, he was involved in founding the famous Panhandle White Sox baseball team somewhere around 1900 and also would revive the Columbus Panhandle football team, which would be mostly made up of a bunch of railroad employees. His team, the Columbus Panhandles, also had quite possibly the most famous, well, actually not the most famous because most people really don't know about them, but the biggest group of brothers to play on the same team for a professional football team. You see, nowadays we have the Eli, Peyton Mannings, um, they didn't play on the same team together, but in the same league. The Griffin brothers, who, you know, congratulations to Mr. Griffin for getting drafted this year by the Seahawks. Now they get to play together on the same team, which I thought was very cool. Twin brothers playing on the same team out west. Doesn't matter because the Lions are still coming for you, man. Now getting back to the brothers I was talking about. They were called the Nesser brothers. That's N-E-S-S-E-R. And for the majority of the time they played together, there were, out of 11 starters, five were the Nesser brothers. And then in 1910, the sixth Nesser brother joined, meaning that they actually had the majority of the starters, as in there were more starters of Nesser brothers than there were for the remaining part of the team. So I guess if there's any kind of vote, you... uh. Basically just said, okay, whatever the Nestor brothers want, I'll just do what they want to do. Let's go ahead. Now, their bro- the brothers' names were Fred, Frank, Phil, John, Ted, and Al. And another cool kind of interesting tidbit was in 1921, Ted's son joined the team. And they are believed to be possibly the only father-son combo to play on the same team in professional football. I'd have to do some more digging up about that, but I would 
believe that that may be a fact because football is hard to have that kind of an age group. It's a little bit more believable in baseball, but for football to be able to do it, that's pretty impressive. But getting back to the father of professional football, Mr. Joseph Francis Carr, who we're probably going to just call Carr moving forward in this episode. You see, he would end up having many leadership opportunities throughout his long career as the president of the NFL. But we're going to focus on the time frame between the meeting on September 17th, 1920, all the way up until a couple of years later when it would finally be called the National Football League. So we're hopping back on our time machine, and we are going to go one day after to September 18th, 1920. This is the day after that momentous meeting that was in Ralph's auto showroom. And as we discussed last episode, Mr. Jim Thorpe was named the president. And another thing that came out of that was the meeting had called for a $100 membership fee to kind of show the respectability, but rumor has it that nobody paid. So it was already getting off to a rocky start. And Mr. Jim Thorpe, although a great athlete, possibly the greatest of his time, wasn't the man for the job. And we would suffer through for like seven or eight more months, letting him be the leader, the president. And it was possible because they were losing so much money and clout because there were so many different things going on that caused problems in the professional football league that it was possible they were going to be shut down. Teams were losing money, like I said last time. You know, they were like, I'm broke as a joke. But this time it's getting serious. You just started this league. Now you want me to pay you 100 bucks, and I'm still losing money? Now this isn't going to fly. So what I'm going to do is when we have a meeting, I'm going to suggest a new leader. And that leader would end up being Carr. But we still got to suffer through this first season. You see, scheduling was left to the teams. And there really wasn't any rules for how many games a team could play or who they had to play against. They're all like, whatever, I do what I want. In this first league, we had teams from four states initially. From Ohio, we had Akron Pros, Canton Bulldogs, Cleveland Indians, and the Dayton Triangles. And then from Indiana, we had the Hammond Pros and the Muncie Flyers. The Rochester Jeffersons came from New York. And then from Illinois, we had the Rock Island Independents. And then throughout the season, it didn't really tell me when, but there were four other teams that wanted to get in the foray. These four teams were the Buffalo All-Americans, the Chicago Tigers, the Columbus Panthers, and the Detroit Heralds. Now we're going to hop, skip, jump over the pond here, and we're going to go back in that time machine up to September 26th, 1920, which is the first game that will feature a team that is part of the American Professional Association. Now at Rock Island's Douglas Park, in front of 800 people, the Rock Island Independence defeated St. Paul Ideals 48 to nothing. Yes, that St. Paul Ideals team was a non-APFA team. Remember, I said, you know, Cartman, I did what I want. They didn't have to play specifically against the APFA teams. They could pretty much just schedule their own teams. I'm assuming some kind of powder puffs because 48 nothing. I mean, come on, guys. That's like the dudes in college where they have their warm-up games. It's kind of like a here. We'll give your program some money so we can just stomp all over you and make a fool out of you on national TV. But throwing up my hands, neither here nor there. We're more interested in October 3rd, 1920. This was the first game that featured two APFA teams playing against each other. At Triangle Park, the Dayton Triangles would end up defeating 
the Columbus Panhandles 14 to nothing. Yes, the Columbus Panhandles. That team does sound familiar. You see, that is the team of our hero, Mr. Carr, and they lost 14 to nothing in the first game between two APFA teams. But they only say pretty much that this was the first game because of a matter of time zones. You see, the Muncie Flyers and the Rock Island Independents also played on the same day. Now, looking through the different articles, there was uh, not an agreement on who scored the first touchdown. Some articles declared that Lou Partlow of Dayton scored the first touchdown between two APFA teams. But some other ones believe that the first points actually had to come from the game between Muncie and Rock Island. You see, it was said that the game between Dayton Triangles and the Columbus Panhandles, although it was 14 nothing, both scores happened in the second half. But there was an argument, like I said, that the first touchdown was actually scored by the Rock Island Independents. I'm setting the stage here. You see, it reminds me of a few games that I've seen in my days where there's a kickoff. And this is a kickoff by the Rock Island Independents. And then on that first series, they said that Muncie met a stone wall. And then Ken Huffine punted. In roared Rock Island tackle Ed Shaw to block the punt. Former Minnesota All-American Arnie Wyman picked up and ran 35 yards for a touchdown. Yes, you heard it here first. Well, maybe you heard it from somewhere else, but you heard it here. I said Arnie possibly scored the first touchdown of the National Football League, even though it was called the APFA back then. I'm just saying. This podcast was bound to happen. The football gods shed their light upon me. They said, you scored the first touchdown, or at least your name did. And now I want you to tell everybody about that and everything else throughout the history of the NFL. But looking back at that first season, most of the scores were basically very lopsided. I saw a lot of, you know, the first the first game was 48 nothing or 52 nothing or 30-something nothing or whatever nothing. It's almost like they needed more technology. A line and a joke that my dad says, all the time about new technology, mostly the iPhone, is, let's just break it up here. Let's just say you had an iPhone and you were to show him a new app. The first thing coming out of my dad's mouth would be, you know, if Captain James T. Kirk had an iPhone, he'd have whooped the clean dogs. I'm like, yep, I know, man. And if these guys would have had some better technology, maybe they would have whooped the Muncie Flyers. That's a Star Trek reference for those of you out there that have no clue what I'm talking about right now. Now, a random fact, going back to the Nesser brothers. Frank Nesser was the first to throw an interception in the new APFA. And he was apparently also the one to get his pump blocked in the first game that led up to that touchdown. He's got to be sitting there just putting his hands on his head going, this is not cool, man. And then some other shenanigans that supposedly happened was a game between the Chicago Cardinals and the Tigers at Chicago Cubs Park was rumored to be the reason why the Tigers ended up fizzling out that year. You see, the Cardinal owner, Chris O'Brien, supposedly bet the APFA franchise on the game. The Cardinals would win, so then the Tigers had to be shut down the next season. Now I'm sitting here going, eh, maybe. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But it'd be fun and interesting to think about that a person would bet the entire franchise on one game. 
But more realistically, and probably more likely the fact, was that the team was losing, and dwindling attendance caused the team to lose too much money. So basically, like I said earlier, they's going broke as a joke, man. They had to shut her down. Somebody I want you to think about is a gentleman I'm going to call the Hitman. He would actually be considered a different name. Rock Island fans would end up nicknaming this guy the Beast. Not quite beast mode, but maybe he was somewhat similar to what we kind of saw as beast mode. The enforcer, the hitman, the punisher. Give him whatever name you want. But there would end up being many, many linebackers down the line that would end up being just like this guy. His name was George Trafton of the Decatur Staley's. And he was, he wasn't the original, like the, you know, the OG of Dirty Players. But he definitely was one of the uh, first guys that I read about as far as being what they deemed as dirty. In a game against Rock Island on November 7th, he was part of four players being knocked out of the game. And they mentioned one play he almost decapitated Hal Grunderson when he slid across his face on a pileup. And the headlines of the Argus, I think that's a newspaper of the time, stated that Staley's win world's dirt title and unsportsmanlike conduct of starchmen and utter affront to fair name of clean sport. And like I said, the Rock Island fans called Trafton the beast. But going back to, I guess, a previous game between the two teams, that is the Decatur Staley's and the Rock Island Independents, as he was getting away, he hopped into a passing by taxi. And I guess some fans... They weren't too uh, keen on what he had done, so they were throwing rocks at him, and the window smashed all over the place. He hopped out, and then I guess a passing motorist kind of, you know, picked him up, like, throwing my thumb out there, hey, give me a ride, and maybe the motorist didn't know what he was, what he did, or more than likely he was heading back across the state line, so he made it from there back to Decatur. And in this second game that I had talked about, supposedly George Hallis, at the end of the game, had given Trafton the Staley share of the gate receipts, which they stated was $7,000. And then he told them, meet you at the hotel, man. Well, he probably didn't say man, but he's like, meet you at the hotel. Which doesn't really seem like much, and a quote, I guess, that came from Hallis later was, I figured he'd run faster than I would. He was running for his life. I would have just been running for 7000 bucks." With all this aside... The championship came down to what they said as three teams. And like I said in the last episode, they didn't have those playoffs. They were just going to vote for a champion. And they had promised that they were going to have a vote in January. But then February came. And then March. And then April. Almost May. They ended up having a meeting on April 30th, 1921. So I guess, as you can see, all that time goes by. They still had not awarded a champion for the 1920 season. I think that's one of those where I'm clicking my stamp on the stamping pad and I am stamping it right here on this little note. And I'm saying, we are not serious about this league, which easily can make the league fizzle out. Now we bring back our hero, Mr. Joseph Carr. And although they did end up crowning the Akron Pros with a championship for the 1920 season, there had to be something done. If something didn't get done, 
then this league was going to go down just like the Titanic did a little more than nine years previously, which happened in 1912, of course. But let's get back to our hero, Mr. Joe Carr of the Columbus Panhandles. The APFA had to be reorganized, and he was named the president in 1921, and Carl Stork of Dayton Triangles was named the secretary treasurer. So, to make some things shifted, shaking it up, Carr moved the APFA headquarters to Columbus, Ohio. And then under his leadership, they would draft a new league constitution and some bylaws. They gave teams territorial rights, they restricted player movements, they developed membership criteria for franchises, and then they would issue standings for the first time so that the APFA would have a clear champion. The next meeting would end up being June 18th at Cleveland's Hollanden Hotel for scheduling and ratifying the new constitution. Two primary things that they included were to prevent contract jumping and eliminating the use of collegiate players. Then on a third meeting before the 1921 season, which occurred on August 27th in Chicago at the LaSalle Hotel, it was said that possibly this is the first time Hallis was there, because Ralph Hay reported Bulldogs would play the Staley's in Chicago on October 30th, and it was said that only Hallis could make that scheduling decision. Although they said that Hallis wasn't actually in the meeting minutes, but the fact that he would not let anybody else make these decisions because it is his team. They had to assume, because Ralph Hay had reported that they were going to play the Staley's, that Hallis must have been there. Which, it seemed like for some reason, this was an important point. They made sure that they noted this was the first time that Hallis was at one of the meetings. Also, under Carr's leadership, the association's membership would grow to 22 teams. This is where we bring in the Packers, which were awarded to John Clare of the Acme Packing Company, which had taken over the Indian Packing Company. And now I guess I know where the term Packers come from. The Acme Packers were uh, a meat packing company. So, duh, I guess it makes sense that they would be called the Packers. We're going to go ahead and get into Packer history later in this show. Something I also saw was that A.E. Staley turned the Decatur Staley's over to player coach George Hallis and then moved the team to Cubs Park in Chicago during this season. It said that Staley paid $5,000 to Hallis to keep the name Staley's for one more year. The letter of agreement was on October 6th. And in this letter, there were a few different stipulations. Like I said, one of them, for whatever reason, was Staley really wanted to have his name on the team for at least one more year. But it would work out for Mr. Staley, because the Staley's claimed the 1921 APFA championship with a 9-1-1 and record. Buffalo was 9-1-2. and So, President Joe Carr ruled in favor of the Staley's. This became Hallis' first NFL championship. But wait, I keep saying APFA. And you're right, that wasn't actually called the NFL yet. That would come prior to the 1922 season. And that would end up coming under the tutelage of President Joe Carr. But before the 1922 season would get kicked off with a meeting, there were a few things that happened back in 1921. Apparently, Claire and Green Bay admitted to using players with college eligibility in the 1921 season. So, they initially had to withdraw from the APFA. Curly Lambeau promised to obey league rules 
and used $50 of his own money to buy back the team. Bad weather and low attendance plagued the Packers. I mean, duh, you're up in Green Bay, dude. So Lambo went broke. This is where the interesting thing comes in. I always wondered how this is the only team that is basically like a public domain, um, like a not a privately owned company kind of thing. They said that local merchants, led by Press Gazette General Manager Andrew B. Turnbull, arranged $2,500 loan for the club and public nonprofit to be set up for the team, with Lambeau to run as the head coach and manager. Fans were able to purchase shares of stock for $5, and of course, a season ticket came with it. I'm thinking, nowadays, I wonder how much that's worth. $5 to buy a stock in the Green Bay Packers, one of the most storied and legendary teams of all time, and you only purchased it for 5 bucks, and you had a season ticket? Man, talk about an investment. So next time they ask me one of those questions of what I'm going to do when I hop on my DeLorean, you know what I'm doing. Even though I'm a Lions fan, it's going to pain me to say, but I got to go buy some of those stocks because the Green Bay Packers ain't got to be worth a ton of money. But again, like I said earlier, we'll deal with the Green Bay Packer history later in this show, which, by the way, now's a good time to remind you. If you want to make sure that you get the hottest, freshest off the press episodes of the Football History Dude, please subscribe to your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com where you can get more details about this episode and many other golden nuggets about the history of the NFL. But we're getting really close to figuring out how the APFA would become the National Football League. We are now at the Holland Inn Hotel in Cleveland, Ohio, and the date is June 24th. Well, actually, it's June 24th through the 25th in 1922, a place where 20 clubs met for an owner's meeting, and they would provide some interesting amendments to the two-year-old league constitution. The members would end up allowing an insurance agent 15 minutes to make a spiel, pretty much getting closer to realizing that this possibly has a long-term liability. And if we're going to be serious about this thing, we have to think about our future and protecting our own, our players, our teams, our coaches, and everybody around the NFL. Oh wait, (laughs) it's not called the NFL yet. That's right, we are the APFA. Another, well, to me, what I think is pivotal moment in the longevity of the game was they guaranteed the salary of the referee even if the game wasn't played as in like if it was rained or snowed out or something the ref was still going to be paid but more importantly it was president joe carr that was going to appoint these referees instead of the teams just deciding who they were going to have and maybe it doesn't seem like it's important but think about it if i talk this referee into being a ref at my game and i'm a coach I'll be all like, hey dude, I'll give you some bacon if you give me some cheddar. You know what I mean? Let's get this thing done. He is home. I mean, I gotta imagine that there was stuff in their pockets full of cash from some of these games. Kind of, you know, some insider betting going on. Johnny Benchant got nothing on these dudes. And then another change would be the length of the 1922 season would start on October 1st and then end on December 10th with the stipulation that teams must play at least seven games, but no more than 13 to be listed in the standings. To me, that's still kind of a big discrepancy if some only play seven and some play 13, but we're getting closer to an organized schedule. 
and they have a designated time frame for when you can play those games. So like I said, we're getting closer. It made me kind of think about how did Jokar think about some of this stuff? Did it come to him in a dream? You know, like <laughs> like the white lining is like, I went to sleep and I just had this crazy dream and I woke up and I had all these ideas, man. Or was it prior experience? Although the first one seems a little interesting, kind of like maybe, you know, maybe uh, kicking back too many of those beers back at Ralph's auto dealership came out with some kind of crazy ideas. But that's really more of a boring story. You see, he had experience with the minor league baseball team. He kind of managed that and some basketball and such. So he knew how to be an administrator, which is good because if we didn't have this leadership, it's still possible that we wouldn't have the NFL. He would end up adopting a reserve clause, which would allow teams to reserve the rights of players the following year. It was said that Hallis and Sternman ran afoul of the clause at the June meeting regarding reserve players. He really buckled down on the college player rule, too. The bylaws changed to drop a fee for any team that were guilty. As in, if you were caught using college players, we're going to fine you. And then the second offense could result in expulsion from the league. Which, as with any kind of thing there is, there's ways around it. They had another problem where players were, quote-unquote, moonlighting. You see, college players were using false names to be able to play. But Carr cracked down. He said to them, if you are caught doing this, you know, using a fake name just so you can get around the whole college player rules, then it will result in expulsion forever from the league. None of these three strikes and you're out business. It is my way or the highway. You do this, no chance. We have a no tolerance policy. You see, you fail, you're out. No more strikes, dude. The NFL players nowadays, they want to complain about Mr. Goodell. Well, back then, this guy was like, line in the sand. You even put your little toe across it, and you're gone. Which kind of brings me to the uh, salaries of the players. The salary cap was a point of contention. You see, the winter meetings, the group had decided on $1,800 per game as a salary cap. But they said that Hallis from the Bears and then the Buffalo team fought to have the cap include all expenses, presumably because they had most home games. Basically meaning that they wanted the $1,800 to include paying the players as well as getting the players to the game. So if you had a home game, then you had an advantage because you didn't have to take the players anywhere. Which, of course, means that you could afford better players. So, of course, if you're going to have home games, then, you know, naturally you should fight to have the expenses included. But to me, that's not fair because I want it to be a level playing field. And that's what they agreed on. And speaking of Hallis, it seemed to me like they were kind of, uh, you know, resented by the league. But it was said that the league needed the Bears, if not more, than the Bears needed the league. I mean, Chicago was a huge market at the time. And there was a lot of money to go around compared to a lot of the smaller cities and such. But I guess a meeting in Dayton on August 20th gutted the 21 champion Staley's, which of course was Hallis' team. Because, quote unquote, technically it didn't exist anymore. You know, because... It got changed over to the Chicago Bears, I'm guessing. I'm not 100% sure if that's what they meant, 
and I'm not sure why they picked on just the Chicago Staley's or the Chicago Bears or Hallis' team or whatever we want to say. Probably because of the powerhouse. Kind of like, seems like nowadays the Patriots and the fans always want to say they're picking on the Patriots. But it's like, well, quit cheating, man. You know, then you're not going to be hit with these fines. I'm in this room by myself right now, but doesn't that seem obvious? Nah, I'm not here to judge or talk about that or anything. But now, all the players from that team were free agents, so it was fair game. Anybody could go after the team. And Hallis was able to gather a lot of the teammates back up because, you know, who doesn't want to play for the great George Hallis? But they said that one of them that hurt the most was Guy Chamberlain went to Canton under Ralph Hay. And Ralph Hay said, you know what, this justifies the cost. Which gets me to thinking, we talked about the first documented professional football player in the second episode. And that he kind of had like, you know, the first holdout. So maybe we could say that this Guy Chamberlain dude who went to Canton under Ralph Hay, was like kind of maybe the first big-name free agent and possibly changed the fortune and direction for that team? Well, I don't know. But let's go ahead and say this is probably one of the first in the National Football League. But the rest of the meeting didn't really do a whole lot, except from what they said, cut salary cap down to $1,200 per game. They also voted to insert the clause that players wouldn't be paid if quote-unquote, game was canceled for reasons unavoidable or beyond the control of management. To me, it just seems kind of like a cop-out, you know, not guaranteeing the games. You know, owners could use this if they were worried about subpar attendance. And there were workarounds to salary. So even though there was a $1,200 per game salary cap, it was said that they would say, hey, look, we'll just put down $100 on the contract we file with the league. But after the game, we'll slip you an extra 100 These were common arrangements, and it makes me think back to Pudge, the first documented professional football player we talked about. He made $500 in one game 30 years earlier, and now they're only going to get like 100 bucks. So my math's not right, but I'm thinking 30 years later, 400 bucks less. Man, he really didn't make a lot that year. But another workaround that they found was they would list the star player as a coach, meaning they could pay $100 for the player, but then whatever they wanted to as a coach. Something else that came out of the meeting was that teams would carry 16 players in that 1922 season, which is a far cry from the 53 nowadays. I mean, I know that they didn't have as many different kind of packages for defenses and such. It was more like I've kind of been talking about, well, not really just smash, crash, go, because they did have the pass, but there was a lot of mostly just rough and tough kind of tumbling, where nowadays you have Nickel package, dime package, you know, whatever package. And special teams, you know, people played basically the whole time. It was, you're out there from the whistle to the whistle. Or the horn to the horn, or whatever they used back then. So to kind of tie this all together and bring it back full circle, a quote that I found was, it was said in two years the league went, quote, from a flabby group of poor mouse desperately trying to get independent teams to join up to a moderately muscular bunch. Tough to get into, tougher still, on paper, to stay in. Which mean that, to me, even though Mr. Joe Carr would have a longer, more illustrious career still, he was able to, within a short time frame, take the league from just a bunch of shabby dudes to hopefully a respectable league to be reckoned with. Which brings me to perhaps the most important change 
that was the official change name from the American Professional Football Association to the National Football League. As we get close to wrapping this thing up, let's go over just kind of a brief overview of Mr. Joe Carr's career. To kind of sum it up, I found a bio from the Pro Football Hall of Fame's website where it said that he gave NFL stability, integrity with rigid enforcement of rules, introduced standard player contracts, barred the use of collegiate players in the NFL, and worked tirelessly to interest financially capable new owners. Basically meaning that he was out there wheeling and dealing, saying, hey, we got this league. Eh, you know, it's still kind of in the infancy stage, but I tell you what, you get on the ground level, and we together going to ride that pony into the future, and we are going to make billions. But right now, won't you come on and join me? Let's do this. And uh, the NFL MVP was actually awarded under Carr's name from 1938 to 1946. I'm not sure why they changed it, but at least he was given the award for a few years. Then, unfortunately, he passed away on May 20th, 1939, at the young age of 59. And something that I found was a quote from George Hallis, which made you really realize how much of an impact this guy had on people, because Hallis and Carr, from what I've gathered throughout my readings, kind of butted heads a lot. Even though it wasn't probably a personal level, it was more of a, I don't quite understand what you're saying, man, and I think we should go this way, and I don't care what you want to do. And Mr. Kai would put his foot down and say, with a stern, steady voice, this is the way it is going to be. You either follow me or you don't. And I think Mr. George Hallis decided to follow him. And there was a quote later on from Mr. George Hallis that goes as such. Professional football's remarkable growth and popularity today is not the result of the efforts of any one owner or group of owners. It is due entirely to Mr. Carr's fair and impartial administration of its affairs and his steadfast belief in the game. As discussed in the previous episode, Jim Thorpe was selected as president of the American Professional Football Association. However, his leadership skills for advancing the organization of the APFA left much to the imagination. A year after his election, the true savior of the NFL and father of professional football, Joe Carr, was named the president of the APFA. Over the course of the next 19 years, he would lead the group of ragtag owners to create the necessary rules and regulations that would ultimately become the National Football League. If the league owners would have stuck with Jim Thorpe instead of switching to Joe Carr, it's possible you would not be here waiting for the next season of the NFL. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Football History Dude and were able to gain some knowledge nuggets about the father of professional football and his mark on the NFL. In the upcoming episode, we're going to get down in the dirt to chase after the galloping ghost, Red Grange. And now as my gramps would say, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, Please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs>